word as it is summarized for us in Articles 17 and 18 in uh, the first section of our Canons of Dort. But before we do that, I'd like to read with you from Titus chapter 3, which really summarizes the heart of the confidence that is expressed in this portion of the canons. And that confidence is our confidence that it doesn't rest on us, on what we've done, on how we've responded, on what we believe. It rests in God. Even for the response that He commands of us, we are entirely dependent on Him. He's the one who does it. So starting in verse 3 of Titus chapter 3, the Apostle says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Amen. Now, our canons in this first section spoken extensively about God's election from eternity of those who are His. And we've seen that the evidence of His election becomes evident in us as He, through His Spirit, applies that over time. Um, and it's also applied to us in His promises. Well then, Article 17 comes to a particular circumstance. So since we must make judgments about God's will from His Word, which Word testifies that the children of believers are holy, not by nature, but by virtue of the gracious covenant in which they, together with their parents, are included. Godly parents ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children, whom God calls out of this life in infancy. Now that is a command to recognize and to take hold of a promise of grace. A grace that we can't even see. And so that at times leads people to complain. And so Article 18 addresses that. To those who complain about this grace of an undeserved election and about the severity of a just reprobation, we reply with the words of the Apostle. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? And with the words of our Savior, have I no right to do what I want with my own? We, however, with reverent adoration of these secret things, cry out with the Apostle, 
oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways beyond tracing out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has first given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen indeed. Congregation of God beloved in Christ. One of the most wonderful items that appears from time to time on the agenda of our consistory is when a child of the covenant meets with us to profess his or her faith, desiring to be recognized as a mature member of the church. Now, I said that's a wonderful thing, but that doesn't mean that it's a rare thing. In fact, it is and it should be a common thing and something that we expect of our children. It's wonderful simply because of the nature of children, because of the nature of all people. I've said in the past, if you don't believe in total depravity, have a child. Not because children aren't a great blessing. They're an immense blessing. We should delight in the sight and sound of growing children in our midst. And being a parent is amazingly rewarding. We get the privilege of molding and shaping these young minds and hearts. We get to watch these little ones grow and develop into adults. To raise a child is one of the greatest privileges that we could know. However, raising a child is not the easiest task one could tackle. We strive diligently to raise our children well. We reward good behavior. We punish sinful behavior. We do our best to refrain from teaching them the wrong things. And yet, despite our very best efforts, children steal the toys of their playmates. Children cheat at their simple little games. They lie, blaming others for what they have done. We don't teach them to sin, and yet that sin arises unbidden from their little hearts. And yet, despite that inherent sinfulness, God gives to them the same gracious promises that He gives to us. The promises of grace and forgiveness and love. And He does not limit that promise to what they are worthy or able to seek for themselves. That, my friends, is a wonder to behold and an immense comfort for parents to recall. Man's ability does not limit God's grace. That's our theme this evening. And as we consider what it means and why it's significant that man's ability does not limit God's grace, the first thing we need to notice is that God extends His promises to those who cannot request them. From the very start, we need to recall that neither we nor our children deserve God's favor. Titus 3, verse 3, folks, it's about us. It's about how we, every one of us, began inherently foolish and therefore prone to embrace what would harm us and what would dishonor God. Naturally disobedient. We were rebels even from the womb. 
led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures, preferring the passions of the flesh to the glories of God, filled with malice and envy. Lord's Day 2, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. There was nothing in any one of us that could commend us or even excuse us before God. And you know, it has always been that way. Abraham, when God called him, was a heathen from a long line of heathens. David was an adulterer and a murderer and a pretty poor father to boot. The apostle Peter was a bold proclaimer of Christ, but also was rash and impulsive. And when the pressure was on, he denied his Savior three times publicly. Yet God chose them called them, gave them promises rich and endless. He does not give the promises of His covenant to those who are worthy because none of us is worthy. God called us, God promised to save us despite us. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. We can stop worrying that perhaps we don't deserve God's love. We can stop worrying about it because none of us does. Verse 7, being justified by His grace, we have become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. By grace we are justified. By grace, by favor earned through Christ, God restores us. This is why... God was able to offer you the promises of His covenant. He could promise to be your God because Christ was willing to pay for your sin. He could promise to make you His people because Christ was willing to do everything necessary to cause your adoption. Because of Christ Jesus alone, God extends the promises of His covenant to each one of us and to our children. They're no more worthy than we are. They're sinners from conception, guilty from the division of their first cells. The only thing of which they were worthy is the only thing of which we were worthy, which is God's wrath. Nor is there anything in us that could make them worthy. Our faith did not earn God's promises for them because our faith was a gift given by God. Right? We stand before God as a gift given to us. So there's nothing we could have done that would earn them the grace or the promise of God. As it is for us, so it is for our children. God gives the promises of His covenant and causes to receive them by grace, through Christ. And, the, and that's true for us as for our children. Now the fact of His promises and the fact of their trustworthiness, that is undoubtable. God promised Abraham in Genesis 17. And kids, remember, this is the promise of the covenant. This is the promise that God spoke to you at your baptism. When God said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. That's the promise of the covenant. And that encompasses so very much, doesn't it? 
When he says, I will be your God and you will be my people, he's saying, I will deal with the sin that makes you unworthy in my sight. I will obtain the righteousness and the holiness that you need to enter my presence. I will soften your heart so that you will understand the misery of your sin and desire to be rid of it. I will cause you to understand who Christ is and what he's done and will give you the faith to join you to him. That's what he said to Abraham. And Malachi 3 verse 6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. He is the same today and yesterday and tomorrow. You can trust Him to be just as faithful to you as He was to Abraham. And so we need not be surprised when the Apostle Peter echoes Genesis 17, saying the promise, Acts 2 verse 39, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The only change God made from when he spoke that promise to Abraham versus when he spoke that promise through Peter is the extent. At the first it was to Abraham and his seed, his family. But now that seed has been spread to believers throughout the world beyond the bloodline of Abraham. But still the promise continues to come to believer and also his child. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14 says the children of a believer are holy, not by, na by their nature, but because of God's covenant promise. They're holy, not because they're inherently better than the children of unbelievers, but because God has simply graciously chosen that they will receive His promises, period. And that includes the very youngest of our children. We baptize them when they are mere days old. They can't understand, much less request, the promises they receive. But that's okay, because the promises don't depend on them. The promises depend on the God who gave them. Indeed, God even uses our little children. This is amazing. God even uses our little children to teach us how we are to approach Him. Three of the Gospels talk about it. Mark 10 tells us how Jesus was ministering and some Jews brought their children to be blessed by him. That's significant. Disciples didn't think it was significant. They thought it was a distraction. You bring in all these little children. The word used for children in Mark 10 indicates little, little children. Babes in arms. Toddlers, ankle biters, little ones. You know, the kind that make noise and that don't know how to sit still and that are such a distraction. Maybe we should establish a nursery. And so they started to rebuke the parents. The Messiah is teaching. This isn't the time. This isn't the place. People are trying to listen. People are trying to learn. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes them. Not the parents. The disciples. And He says to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs... Do you hear this? To such belongs the kingdom of God. These were not children who had made profession of faith. These were not children who could recite their catechism. These were babies. And he says, to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What kind of faith does a toddler have? 
Folks, it's a faith that doesn't question, it doesn't doubt, it doesn't second guess. It is a faith that receives eagerly and openly whatever God gives. Think of your own children. You tell them that God created everything. They don't respond by asking a bunch of questions about evolution or scientific consensus, do they? No. They just smile and nod and say, of course he made it all. You tell your little children that God will provide whatever they need. They don't waste time worrying about how He's going to provide. They don't ponder this philosophical interplay between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. No, they simply sit back and relax and trust that God will give them what they need. Now look on that simple faith of a child, Jesus says. That's how I want you to trust me, my promises. And folks, that's how we need to raise our covenant children whom God has sent. Parents, understand that God will not save your children because of how you raise them. Yes, God will use you as an instrument in His hand. But also, yes, you will make mistakes. You will fall short. You will not save them. Ultimately, what is true for you is true for them. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. It is God's work that counts. God's work that saves. And therefore, teach your children, instruct them, yes, but far more importantly, pray that God would do the work that you can't. That God would apply the work that you imperfectly administer. That God would draw them to Himself as only He is able. And then urge them to trust the one who has claimed them as His own. Young people, expect that God will give you what He has promised. Don't, don't live like a heathen and expect that someday perhaps God will take hold of you and turn you out of the darkness into the light. No, God in your infancy, laid claim to you. Believe His promise and act like a child of God. Today, now. That means expect that He will use the people that He has surrounded you with to teach you what it means to be a disciple. Expect that He has given you and is giving you the gifts you need to serve Him this moment, not later, not when you grow up, not when you've arrived. No, now. You are to be his disciple. And also you little children. This is also for you. Your faith, the faith that you have as a child, is the faith that God desires. So hold on to that trust of God. And pray that he will mature you. So that as you grow, you can understand more and more and more how amazingly and wonderfully and perfectly God has been at work to make you his own. God extends his promises to us before we can ever even request them. And he will not refuse our prayer when we ask him for help in making, in, in taking hold of those promises as our own. And yet God's grace is even greater as we see in the second part of Article 17. This section uh, considers the particular circumstance of infant children who die before they can respond to God's promises. Now, 
That might seem a little strange. Why would we include in one of our confessions that relatively rare event? But the thing is, it wasn't. This was written almost 500 years ago. More than 500 years ago. Infant mortality was high. There was probably not more than one or two men at the Synod of Dort who hadn't known in their very close family the death of infants. It's a very live issue. And frankly, it's a much more live issue today among us than many people recognize. Because sadly, many parents grieve in silence the death of infants in the womb. Not talking about it. There's no shame in it. God chose to take that child. And we should grieve. Because that's one of our children. And so our forefathers, recognizing the heartache that comes with the loss of an infant child, whether in the womb or recently born, said, what do we do with that? How do we deal with that? And what they show us there is that God extends His grace to those who cannot respond to it. Generally speaking, understand that children are a dilemma for religious scholars. In almost every religion, some sort of response to God is required. In some cases, it's a meritorious response to earn God's favor. In other cases, it's a requirement for a particular kind of knowledge. Still others, us included, demand faith. Expect that those who receive God's grace must respond by trusting Him. But what can infants do? They can't speak or walk or feed themselves, much less earn anything from God. They can't speak accurately or necessarily understand the important things we say, how can they gain significant knowledge? They can trust, but to what degree, to what extent? And yet sometimes infants die. How do we handle that? What are we to think about that? Some, some Christians just shrug and say, well, you know what? think they're all lost. If they don't have faith, they can't be saved. And others say, no, 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 no. If they die before they come to an age of understanding, infants are all saved. Right? They're just, that's just what happens. They're all saved. God wouldn't condemn them without them having the knowledge to choose for or against. And still others in the Roman Catholic Church say, eh, let's, let's cut that one in half. Uh, they, they don't go to heaven, but they don't go to hell. They go to limbo, the limbus infantum which isn't heaven, but it's not really the fullness of hell. Problem is, none of those explanations is found in Scripture. And if we're to have a solid comfort, it has to come from God's Word. And folks, this is where we need a solid comfort. So what has God taught us in His Word? He's taught us that He loves the children of believers. Not saying that God loves everybody. His own Word says that he abhors those who live in rebellion against him, Leviticus 26, and that he hates the wicked and those who love injustice, Psalm 11. And yet he loves those whom he has chosen for himself and their children. That is why Jesus so eagerly received those children of Israel. That is why he blessed and commended the faith even of these young children. 
That's why in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14, he says that the children of believers are holy in his sight. Now I ask, our children who live and who grow and mature, what do we expect of them? We don't do as the Amish do and say, you know what, go and live like the world and then make your choice. We don't do that, do we? And we don't treat them like little vipers in diapers thinking that they're all lost until maybe we can bring them to, to repentance and faith. No, we treat them as Christians because they've received the promises of the covenant. And so from the word go, we tell them, God is your Father. Jesus is your Savior. You need to act like that. You need to trust Him. You need to live for Him, right? Why do we do that? Because we believe God's promises. And we want them to believe God's promises. So we call them to do that. Now, to be sure, there is an occasional exception to the rule. An Ishmael, an Esau, a Judas. Those are tragic cases. Deeply tragic because they reject God rebelliously, knowingly. But they are exceptions to the rule. Rare exceptions, thankfully. But the vast majority of the children God sets apart as His own in the covenant, they turn to Him by faith. But what if one dies before he can express that faith? Who took that child at that early age? Was it not God? More than that, he did not do so willy-nilly. He did not do so outside of his will, did he? No. He took that child before the child was able to reject the promise that God made. Now, where in Scripture does it say that the death of a child nullifies the promise of God? It does not. And therefore we trust the promise of God who says, I will be God to you and to your children. It's in that light that we read about David's response to the death of his child in 2 Samuel 12. Some will say that that proves nothing, that text. We saw it a few weeks ago when we looked at Bathsheba as a mother of the Lord. And you'll recall the story that David was confronted by his significant public sins. He repented and therefore he was forgiven. But because his sins were public, there had to be a consequence. And therefore God said that the child born to him and Bathsheba would die. Soon after that, the child became ill. And David responded pretty radically. He refused to eat. He refused to function. He fasted. He prayed. He passionately sought God's healing of this child. But the child died. And his servants, whispering together, expressed their fear of telling him why. Well, they... They feared if he responded so radically, so inconsolably, while the child was simply sick, if they told him that he was dead, surely he would do something worse. He might take his own life. But David saw their whispering, discerned that his son must have died. And his response, his response confused his servants. He washed, changed his clothes, went and worshipped the Lord, and then came and ate. That seemed inconsistent in the eyes of his servants. And so they asked him, What is this thing that you have done? 
You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. Stop there. Recognize the significance of their concern. David's servants expected him to grieve inconsolably. His beloved son had just died. His own sin ultimately is what caused it. Having seen his grief and his desperation at the illness of his child, they expected him to be absolutely inconsolable and even beyond that at the child's death. But that's not what happened, is it? There's no bitterness, there's no wailing, there's no heart-rending moans. There's no shaking his fist at heaven. There's no screaming out accusations and questions to God. Why? Because, David explains, when the child was alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. My dear friends, that is not the response of a man who is confused or has no clue where his child is. That is the response of a man who trusts the promise of God. David trusted God who claimed that child as his own. David trusted God who commanded David when that child was eight days old to mark him with the sign and seal of his covenant promise. David trusted God knowing that his promise is sure and unwavering. David's confession reveals faith in God's promises toward a child of the covenant. His calmness is in response to God's saying, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. David remembered those words and they comforted him. He refused to doubt the election and the salvation that God had promised. Now, of course, David knew, just like himself, this child is sinful. But the sin of man does not nullify the promise of God. And since this child was taken in death before he could ever rebel. If the child had been taken at age 18 or 25, but his life to that point had shown no rebellion or rejection of the Lord, he would have no question. The promises of God applied to this child, this young man. If the child had died at eight or ten years old and the child had shown no rebellion against the Lord, no hatred toward God, he would have absolute confidence, would he not? The promises of God applied to this child. This child was taken young. A few days, a few weeks, we were not sure. But there was no opportunity, no evidence that the child had rejected the promises of God. Why would he not trust the promises of God? My friends, we ought not to doubt the promises of God. That's what our confession says. That's what God's Word says. When our children fall ill or are in danger, let us trust God who has claimed them. 
When one of our young children dies, whether by accident or in the crib or in the womb, remember that God, who promised to be their God, always keeps His promises. We trust God. We must trust God as David did, with a childlike trust, with an unquestioning confidence, with a certainty that He who claimed our child is faithful and true. And we must refuse to doubt our gracious, saving God. We must refuse to question His word, or to heed that dangerous question, has God really said? God's word is faithful. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That's his promise to us. And he has assured us the promise is for you and for your children. So like little children, let us believe His Word, refusing to doubt, refusing to rob Him of His glory, comforting each other with His sure promises. But not everyone likes that. It is displeasing to the independent, self-reliant heart of man, which is what the Canons of Dort was written to counter, Because it doesn't allow us to be in control or to take matters into our hands. Nor does it, let's be honest, nor does it bring comfort to those parents who lose a child who themselves have not turned to the Lord. But like it or not, this is what God has shown us. These are the promises God has given us and that makes them true whether we like it or not. So the question arises, the question with which we close, how do we explain these truths to those who don't like it? Now understand, God doesn't need our help to defend Him. Whether they accept these truths as true, whether they accept God's promises as faithful or not, doesn't change the faithfulness of God. But nonetheless, we should desire them to understand both so that God would be honored by them and so that they can have the comfort that we ourselves have, right? So how do we do that? Well, folks, the best that we can do, literally the best that we could possibly do is to confess the truth of God with joy that He has revealed it to us. So that's the last thing, the thing with which we leave this portion of God's Word. God extends His purposes to those who can only rejoice in Him. See, we can't, we can't argue people into trusting God's promises. We can't do it. If they are to know and to appreciate the ways in which God works, they need to see the fruit of God's work in us, and they need to hear our confession of the comfort in which we take refuge. Article 18 of our canons, reflecting on Scripture, helps us with that. We need to begin where the canons, where the Bible itself begins. Man's unworthiness. We must honestly testify, God's love for me makes no sense. I don't deserve it. I could never earn it. I'm worthy only of His wrath. Same with my children. And then we need to confess God's sovereignty. Article 18, we reply with the words of the Apostle, Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? And with the words of our Savior, have I no right to do what I want with my own? God, our Creator, is entirely just to send or to withhold His grace to whomever He desires. 
That he sends mercy to anyone at all is testimony of his abundant grace. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, a rich treasure that we have no right even to ask for. Article 18 again. We, however, with reverent adoration of these secret things, cry out with the apostle, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways beyond tracing out! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has first given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. In other words, we should be eager to tell others, That though we and our children have no right to make demands upon God, we can rejoice that God promised to be our God and that nothing can tear us away from His hands. But let us never just tell them academically, dryly, as a series of doctrines. God, the Creator of the universe, promised to be yours, claimed your children. That is a gift, that is a treasure that we can't even wrap our heads around. If we can't be passionate about that, if we can't be filled with thanksgiving and grace and love over that, then what will move our stony hearts? So let us rejoice. And then with Titus 3, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable to people. If these truths live in us, if this is where our hope is found, if God's promise to be our God and the God of our children is what lets us sleep at night and holds us firm in the the storm, that should move us in everything. In how we speak, in how we act, in how we serve, in what we think of in the dark of night. Colossians 3. Beautiful example. Colossians 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, that's the promise, isn't it? I will be God to you, and you will be my people. He does that by joining us to Christ who's been ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of God, and to Him we are joined by faith. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. The more we come to recognize how graciously He has treated us and our children, the more we will focus on Him, the more we will ponder what we have in Him, the more we will delight that our identity is bound up with Christ. That means that we will put off What is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, etc. And instead, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And the more your life reflects that, the more your life displays Christ. The joy of Christ, the holiness of Christ, the the love of Christ, the more they're going to look at you and say, whatever it is you believe, it makes a difference. It makes a difference that Buddhism and Islam and Mormonism and all the rest of them could never do. The life you live will be evidence of the truth that we believe.
But at the end of the day, it is not our ability, it is not our deeds that bring us comfort. It is God's promise. God's promise is true. God's promise is faithful. And so it is on God's promise that we rest. Let us never doubt the gracious, glorious, perfect promise of God to us and to our children. But let us give Him all the praise, all the glory, and all the trust that is ours. Amen. Let's pray.